and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Wednesday, January 10, 2023. The UN Agency for Migration says it has no plans for repatriating South Sudanese stranded in a refugee camp in Sudan. The humanitarian community as a whole um, is facing some funding constraints uh, in 2024. The plan for 2024 is to try and to streamline our operations and make sure that we're providing uh, as much essential care. And the uh, UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says 50,000 Sudanese have crossed into South Sudan over the past week. As the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, we are extremely worried about the well-being of the arrivals, refugees and returnees fleeing the conflict in Sudan. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The International Organization for Migration, or IOM, says it lacks the capacity to repatriate South Sudanese refugees stranded at Sudan's Liri camp in western Kordofan. IOM's emergency preparedness coordinator says the UN agency is currently focusing on cross-border return program in rank. Mamer Abraham Court reports for VOA from Malakal. Aaron Atkins, the Emergency Preparedness Coordinator for the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, says a funding gap has strained its humanitarian response across South Sudan. The IOM says it is prioritizing essential care and has no funds for repatriating refugees from Sudan to their original homes in South Sudan. I think the, the humanitarian community as a whole um, is facing some funding constraints uh, in 2024. The plan for 2024 is to try and to streamline our operations and make sure that we're providing uh, as much essential care uh, with the recognition that our resources are under a bit of stress a moment uh, financially. Atkins acknowledges the growing humanitarian needs in South Sudan as thousands of families flee Sudan's conflict. He says the IOM will continue to focus on providing clean drinking water and relocating returnees at a transit center in Ren County to their final destinations. We don't have the capacity or the ability to do cross-border operations because our own resources in country are, are limited even to support the needs that already exist in country. So cross-border operations are something that we, we're in discussions with other organizations to try and understand how and what could be possible. But until now, nothing has materialized. Gabriel Oloy, Panyekang County Coordinator for the South Sudan Relief and Rehabilitation Commission, says his office can help internally displaced persons to return to their villages. We are ready to support. So we want people to move. Those who are able to move, if the see security is normal, then they can move because they want to work. A human being without chicken, without God, without cow is nothing. And vulnerable community that government is selling will be vulnerable. Let people not lose hope. Everything come and goes. Everybody should know that there's time for everything. As it is written in the Bible, so we believe that time will come and everybody will enjoy so soon. 50-year-old Nyakimo Wang, a mother of eight children from Tonga Payam, says she has been waiting to be relocated to a village in Panyikang County. 
She says she has spent years at the camp for internally displaced persons in Malakal town. Our children, when we were in the Tunga, were in the schools, and now they are not getting these services because we don't have any money to pay. We had been cultivating sorghum vegetables in our area, but we don't have any place to work now. We are waiting to go, but how can we go now? No money for transport, and we don't have any means to go. 37-year-old youth leader Sabina Wadeng, who is a father of six children, says he is ready to return home to focus on fishing and farming to feed his family. Wilson Akot Ajawin, a 74-year-old father of 20 children, represents Paramount Chiefs at UN Camp for internally displaced persons in Malakal. He says the community is heeding the call of the King of Shuluk to return home. He says they are waiting for support from non-profit aid groups to help families settle in their villages. We are going home, ships and tournaments, we are going home. We are going to set up our norms because there is an order from the, the king that they are supposed to go there and make uh, those areas clean. That is the peace is coming. If we are going there with support with those organizations, we are going to be in our areas without returning to Malacca. We are people who now out to fishing the river, cultivating all this. We are people who want to work and we now how to work and get Last week, Mustafa Gailwal, Commissioner of Panyakan County, said the security situation is stable in the county after the deployment of necessary unified forces in December 2023. Lwal calls on UN agencies and national aid groups to extend their services to Panyakan County to encourage IDPs to return to their villages. For VOA News, I am Amir Abram Court in Malakal. Still on refugee issues, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in South Sudan is calling for funds to help people fleeing the conflict in Sudan and entering South Sudan. UN OCHA notes that the influx of arrivals began with the outbreak of the conflict in Sudan last April and has seen an uptick in recent weeks. Nabil Biagio has more from Washington. When Sudan's conflict between the Sudan Armed Forces and the paramilitary rapid support forces broke out in the Sudanese capital Khartoum in mid-April, tens of thousands of people started to cross the border into South Sudan to the south, Egypt to the north, Chad in the west and Ethiopia in the east of Sudan. Annette Hearns is the acting head of office for UN OCHA in South Sudan. She says the influx of refugees and returnees fleeing the violence which has now engulfed more than half of Sudan has never stopped. As the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, we are extremely worried about the well-being of the arrivals, refugees and returnees fleeing the conflict in Sudan. As in South Sudan, we continue to see an influx of these new arrivals from across the border. Hearn says there has been an uptick in the flow of people fleeing Sudan's conflict into South Sudan in recent weeks. Over 50,000 people have crossed over from Sudan in the past three weeks, with thousands of others reportedly waiting on the other side to enter South Sudan. Hearn says humanitarian organizations operating in South Sudan are overwhelmed by the influx and are in urgent need of funding. 
On behalf of all of the humanitarians who are responding, OCHA is urgently calling for additional resources and funds to meet the overwhelming humanitarian needs for these people at the various transit sites, to facilitate onward transportation of the new arrivals, which we're undertaking in an effort to ease overcrowding at these facilities. Essential supplies and services are extremely limited and are currently overwhelmed. And there's a growing risk of disease outbreak given the concentration of people there. South Sudan hosts tens of thousands of Sudanese refugees in various camps across the country, including Gorom refugee camp on the suburbs of the capital Juba. Here's Hearns again. Since the war in Sudan began in April of last year, almost half a million people have fled into South Sudan. The United Nations estimates that the conflict has displaced over 7 million people and killed more than 10,000. For VOA News, I'm Nabil Biagio in Washington. From Washington, we move to some global news. This coming, the coming year will be a major test of democratic rule as an estimated 4 billion people in more than 50 nations, almost half of the world's population, are set to vote in elections. As Henry Ridgewell reports, the outcomes will likely shape global politics for many years to come. Sheikh Hasina won a fifth term as Prime Minister of Bangladesh Saturday, the first in a series of major elections across the world this year. Taiwan will hold its presidential election on January 13th. China's threat to retake the island by force looms over the vote. William Lai, the candidate for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, who is ahead in the polls, said this month that Taiwanese are not only choosing Taiwan's future leaders to decide on the country's future, but also deciding on the peace and stability of the Indo-Pacific region. Indonesia is set to choose a new president next month to rule the nation of 277 million people, making it one of the world's biggest votes held on a single day. Pakistan will hold parliamentary elections in February, where opposition leader and former Prime Minister Imran Khan remains jailed on charges of leaking state secrets, which he denies. Russians will vote in presidential elections in March and incumbent Vladimir Putin is all but certain to win. Ian Bond is from the Centre for European Reform. He has control of all of the administrative machinery required to make sure that um, a, a crushing vote in favour of him is delivered and you know, we get another six years of, of Putin um, up to at least 2030. India, the world's biggest democracy, will hold parliamentary elections between April and May with the Bharatiya Janata or BJP party under Prime Minister Narendra Modi ahead in the polls. Pushp Saraf is an Indian political journalist. These are very significant elections because uh, there are clearly two opinions in the country at the moment. One is that BJP is polarizing society on uh, communal lines and uh, 
on the other hand, there is opinion that BJP is focusing more on national security. On June 2nd, Mexico is due to hold presidential elections, which could herald a new milestone. Pollster Patricio Morelos said the election is also a historic event because of the possibility that, for the first time, a woman will govern Mexico. The European Union is set to hold parliamentary elections in June, representing more than half a billion people, amid a resurgence in support for right-wing populist parties. Britain is scheduled to hold elections before the end of the year, with polls suggesting opposition Labour Party leader Keir Starmer is on course to end a tumultuous 14 years of Conservative rule. On November 5th, Americans will decide whether to give Democrat Joe Biden a second term as US president or choose a Republican alternative, with Donald Trump seemingly his most likely opponent. Either result will have global ramifications. Anand Menon is Professor of International Politics at King's College London. In the European context, there are all sorts of fears that, you know, Donald Trump could very, very quickly undermine NATO. In the coming year, voters are set to wield their democratic power on an unprecedented scale, and the consequences will likely be felt for decades to come. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Coming up, the Biden administration is under pressure to end the conflict in the Middle East. Find out why after the break. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Bill Yabarro, and I have some electrifying news for you. AFCON 2023 is here, and I'll be at Ivory Coast covering all things AFCON for VOA Africa. We'll have exciting coverage on radio, TV, and all of our digital platforms. Make sure you check out voaafrica.com for AFCON updates. Stay locked right here on VOA Africa. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. The White House continues to reject mounting calls for a cessation of hostilities between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, sending mixed signals amid President Joe Biden's efforts to appease some Americans' call for a ceasefire. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widakwaswara has this report. The death toll has topped 23,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, as Israel continues its military operations, insisting it will stop only after Hamas is eliminated, despite mounting calls for a ceasefire. We do continue to support humanitarian pauses, but not a general ceasefire right now. Uh, The president wasn't signaling any change at all. The National Security Council's John Kirby reiterated the U.S. position to VOA during Tuesday's briefing, despite this remark from President Joe Biden a day earlier. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza, using all that I can to do. Biden was responding to hecklers urging him to call for a ceasefire. One of the most public demonstrations yet of how the conflict is dividing American voters ahead of the November presidential election. 
Melanie Kamet, Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University's Center for Middle Eastern Studies via Skype. The Biden administration and President Biden himself are in a very difficult position here because there still is a significant portion of the American public that is very strongly in support of the Israel-United uh, States alliance and views uh, any effort not to support Israel 100% as uh, as uh, threatening to this alliance. A December Gallup poll shows that 38% of Americans believe Israel receives about the right amount of U.S. support, while 36% think it gets too much and 24% too little. 40% of Democrats and independents say the U.S. provides too much support for Israel compared with 26% of Republicans. Patsy Widakuswara, VOA News, Washington. Still here in Washington, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that Israel has agreed to allow the United Nations to conduct an assessment of conditions in northern Gaza as displaced Palestinian civilians taking refuge in the south of the enclave are begging to be able to return to their homes. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sain reports from the State Department. As Israel continued to pound the Gaza Strip on Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken held longer-than-planned meetings in Tel Aviv with Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken said Palestinian civilians displaced by the war must be allowed to return to their homes. As Israel's campaign moves to a lower-intensity phase in northern Gaza and as the IDF scales down its forces there, we agreed today on a plan for the U.N. to carry out an assessment mission. Uh, it will determine what needs to be done to allow displaced Palestinians to return safely to homes in the north. Blinken said Hamas may have left unexploded bombs and that there are other security and logistical concerns before Palestinians who were told to flee south can return home safely. Displaced Gazans in Khan Yunus on Tuesday asked Blinken to support their return to their homes in the north of the enclave. Gaza resident Inam Ibrahim Hijaz said this. My message to the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken, get us back home to northern Gaza, even if it's to a tent, it's better than here. Because we're suffering. It's been three months we're staying here. It's better to go back home. Blinken said he told Israeli leaders the civilian death toll in Gaza is still much too high. Asked why the United States does not oblige Israel to agree to a ceasefire, Blinken had this to say. We want this war to end as soon as possible. Um, there's been far too much loss of life, far too much suffering. Uh, but it's vital that Israel achieve it's very legitimate objectives of ensuring that October 7th can never happen again. One analyst told VOA, this goal stated by Israel is too vague. Khaled El-Gindi is a senior analyst with the Middle East Institute. He spoke to VOA via Zoom. Israel's no closer to achieving that goal in large part because we don't know what it looks like. Um, and Hamas still has the ability to launch rockets. They are still putting up a fight on the ground. Um, and so the question for the administration is how much of a human cost is too high? The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry 
says more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed since Israel started its war on the Gaza Strip after Hamas surprise attack on Israel on October 7th that killed 1,200 people. Countless homes and buildings across Gaza have been destroyed by Israeli rocket attacks. Cindy Sane, VOA News, the State Department. Still in the United States, free speech is a constitutional right in the United States, but it only protects against censorship by the government. Social media platforms, businesses, and private schools can each have their own policies restricting certain kinds of speech. After the resignation of prominent university presidents, VOA's Veronica Baldras Iglesias looks into the debate over regulating speech on college campuses. The presidents of Harvard University and the University of Pennsylvania recently stepped down after their leadership on combating anti-Semitism on campus was questioned following a congressional hearing last month. This was the exchange between Republican Representative Elise Stefanik and Harvard's president, Claudine Gay. At Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. Claudine Gay did eventually resign, but in response to criticism and allegations of plagiarism, which she denies. House Republicans are now looking into investigating more U.S. universities beyond their anti-Semitism policies. With the backdrop of the culture wars and growing political divisions in the United States, Free speech analysts say openly discussing topics like abortion, race, and diversity has become particularly sensitive on campus. Alex Mori is with the Nonpartisan Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Many uh, groups of administrators politically lean left, uh, many groups of students especially at certain schools, you know, schools on the East Coast, for example, tend to lean very far left. And when students are expressing views that aren't in line with some of those uh, viewpoints, particularly when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, we are seeing divergent viewpoints being silenced. President of the Conservative Leaning Institute for Free Speech. Some faculty members are either being forced out, fired, or they found the atmosphere uh, for research and teaching so oppressive, many of them have quit. But amid the conservative push for broader higher education reforms, the nonprofit Pan America cautions that meaningful changes to protect free speech should come from within the educational institutions themselves. Kristen Schwerdian is a senior leader on Pan America's free expression and education team. Where we have uh, great concern is when we see politicians um, who are uh, attempting to make those reforms. And in the form, as we have seen, of legislation like educational gag orders uh, prescribing what can and cannot be taught on campuses. Beyond how the political wars play out, Universities can take steps to promote a culture of free speech, says First Amendment law professor Eugene Volokh. I think universities should have more panels or debates on things like abortion, race-based affirmative action, transgender rights, uh, immigration, both legal and illegal immigration. Those kind of events, he noted, would teach students the importance of listening and engaging with views they may not necessarily agree with.
Verónica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. From Washington, we move to Nigeria, where China is the leading player in Nigeria's construction industry. That's according to the Chinese embassy in Abuja. However, Nigerian contractors and engineers say Chinese farms forced them out of major projects. Al-Hassan Bala reports from Abuja, Nigeria, in this story narrated by Steve Baragona. Engineer Saeed Magari is a local contractor working on-site in Abuja's booming construction industry. But Magari says the presence of large Chinese construction companies in Nigeria has limited local builders like him to smaller residential housing projects. And a lot of our local contractors don't have that capacity to compete with those foreign contractors. Because they have the expertise, they have the experiences, they have the technical equipment, as well as the financing options. So these are threats to our local contractors. That's why our local contractors are looking at small residential private projects. Chinese companies have moved in to fill the gap. As of September 2021, Nigeria's debt to China is $4.1 billion, mainly for infrastructure projects, according to Nigeria's Debt Management Office. Development consultant Jide Ojo believes Chinese loans are a contributing factor forcing the government to give Chinese companies construction projects. China will give you the loan, but we also state in the terms and condition of the loan that they need to bring in their own expertise and their own uh, infrastructure to execute the project. The fear is that if we fail to service those loans, uh, future government may run into problems and have some of those assets seized. Authorities say loans from the Chinese government were predominantly used to enhance infrastructure. But president of the Nigerian Society of Engineers, Tasu Saeed Gidari Wudil, says the Nigerian government should create an environment to support local contractors. Government should deliberately invest in our own local contractors. How do they invest? Just give us jobs and challenge us. VOA reached out to the Chinese embassy in Nigeria and CCEC, the Chinese-owned construction company, for comments. But inquiries and interview requests went unanswered. But the Chinese ambassador to Nigeria, Choi Jianchuan, said in a statement that his country is the leading contributor to the country's infrastructure development. But for engineers like Magari, the dominance of Chinese construction companies is pushing away Nigerian talent, as some contractors leave looking for better opportunities elsewhere while others work in other sectors. One of the challenges we have are that you are not giving chances, opportunities for training, mentorship, participation for these, our local and young, growing people. For now, Magari says he and his colleagues will have to focus on building homes. For Al-Hassan Bala in Abuja, Nigeria, Steve Baragona, VOA News. And that's all we prepared for you this Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. We now leave you with Lomerica Jasban and the song Salam Fis Sudan. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Nabil Biagio, and engineer, Bill Andrat, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us tomorrow again for... Another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America.
Salam, 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 ya Reis Naya.